Have you ever had that experience where you're looking in the mirror and then all of a sudden you see your father looking back at you? <laughs> it's a wonder, isn't it? You think, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know that I want to be like my father or look like my father, and then you realize you become your parent as you grow up. For a lot of us, that's a horrifying thing to think about and also a wonderful thing. I want to say happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you, Dad. I know you're watching at home all the way back in Temecula, California. Represent Temecula. And uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I want to take a moment and just to say and acknowledge the reality that for many of us, the idea of dad is a positive thing. It's a wonderful thing. I've been given a great father. And I know for, for many of us, it's a painful place. It's a hard place for some of us. We don't have our dads are around or that was a void in our life. But I was reminded by Jared this week as we were talking about dads that there's so many people that come along that are like dads and they fill a space in life that teach and coach and mentor and lead us. And I want to take a moment just to say thank you for the ways that God has filled the void in our lives. So if we can pray just to say thank you to Jesus for the ways that Jesus has been a good father to us, but also providing for us people that have come along in our journey that have been father figures that we were grateful that we've had in our life. So let's hold them together, those people that come to your awareness, and just say thank you together as we pray. Jesus, we begin by acknowledging that you are the king, that you are Lord, that you are all in our life. We hold you in the center of all things, and we ask that you bless and keep and teach and lead us this morning. We want to say thank you for our dads. Thank you for the things that they represent in our lives. Thank you for even those painful parts that are hard for us to look at and that you've brought us through that you continue to heal in us. Thank you for providing coaches and mentors and men who have come along in our lives that have been good examples of what a loving dad looks like. Thank you for their lives. Bless them today. Help dads to fully live into who they are, to feel seen and understood and appreciated by your goodness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to pull out your Bibles, those red things in front of you. If you would grab that, if you have one, they're under your chair. And I want to invite you to turn over to page 936, page 936. And if you don't have one, find one or somebody help somebody find one. And here's what I, I would like us to do as we're stepping into a new journey this summer. We're going to be looking into the Beatitudes. We're going to be looking at bits and pieces of the Sermon on the Mount and asking the question, what does it look like to be human? What's it, what is it really like to be a human? And I think Jesus gives us a clear, compelling vision of what it means to be fully alive and to be a full human on the earth. He gives us a great picture. So each week we gather, we're going to start by reading the Beatitudes together. I want this to get into our bones, like to get inside of us that we're more informed by the, the Beatitudes than we are by our local news channels. Are you with me? Okay, good. So if you would stand with me one more time, I'm going to read the first two verses, and then I'm going to ask you all to read with me verses 3 through 12. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So listen for the first two verses and then read with me. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, come on, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to keep that open, feel free to keep it open. We're going to be looking at a few excerpts out of the Gospel of Mark this morning. So if you want to flip over to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that's where we're going to situate ourselves this morning. And here's what I want to do. This morning, I simply want to create a framework for us to where we can look at Jesus' teaching through a particular lens and a particular frame. So for the first two weeks of this journey, we're going to be looking at the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which I think is central to the message of Jesus. And then week three, we're going to look at this and explore this idea of how we read the scriptures and how we as people need to constantly put into practice decentering ourselves out of the story and not placing ourselves in the center of God's story. That's the place for Jesus. So often what we do when we read scripture is we make it about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about God. There's a bigger story going on that I want to keep us situated in. So this morning, we're, we're looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And this is what it says in verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, when you read that, the beginning of the good news, the first question that comes up is, what's the good news? What is that? Do we know it? Are, are we fully understanding what the good news is, or are we already reading into what we think the good news is? Then Jesus begins to explain, this is what the good news is. He gives us a description of the good news just a few verses down later. In chapter 14, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, you have heard me say that this is what I think is Jesus' inaugural speech. This is it. This is his launching point. The good news of the kingdom of God, in which he states the kingdom of God is here. Now, please hear this, and I want you to hear this clearly. This statement was made in a public forum. This wasn't Jesus off on a hillside. This wasn't Jesus in a private space, only talking to a few people. This would have been right in the center of the public square. All people would have heard this statement that Jesus made right in the middle of an already established kingdom. And at this time, the already established kingdom was Rome. So if you make a statement, hey, the kingdom of God is here, in an already established kingdom, what do you think that's going to do to people? 
it's not going to be received super well by people who are in positions of power. They would hear this and go, uh, what do you mean that there's a new kingdom in place? We already have an established kingdom. And if you think about the established kingdom of Rome, Rome had already achieved the way to peace. Peace, prosperity, flourishing. This particular system was working for lots and lots of people. And as long as you submitted your will to the way of Rome and followed the way of Rome, things would go well for you and your family. So the pressure to walk in the way of Rome would have been immense. Now, what happens when you make a decision, a public decision, to follow a new king, a new world order, and you know that this new way of living doesn't align with the kingdom that's already been established? Things are not going to go well for you. It's like you're going up against a current that's flowing in this direction, and the way of Jesus is going in a counter-culture, counterintuitive direction. That brings a great deal of pressure. So along comes Jesus. Jesus comes from a poor family. He comes from the outside. He's not a person who's in a position of political power or religious power. He's a Jewish rabbi. However, he's drawing large crowds of people. So people are paying attention. He's healing. He's performing exorcisms. He's doing all of these things where he's drawing lots and lots of people. So the moment the words leave Jesus' mouth. In our language, this might be what it sounded like. Are you ready? Imagine this on the front page of the news. The radical revolutionary empire of God is here, advancing by reconciliation and peace, expanding by faith, hope, and love, beginning with the poorest, the weakest, the meekest, and the least of these. Everything is about to change. It's time for a new way of life. It's time to believe in me, follow me, believe this good news so that you too can learn how to truly live and be part of this revolution. This is what it looks like to be human. Now that would capture our attention. The kingdom of God is central to the mission of Jesus, to the teaching of Jesus. He proclaimed it, he taught it, he demonstrated it, he followed up with actions. He challenged people to hear. If you have ears to hear, I invite you to listen to what I'm saying. He invited people to leave their false sense of control and enter into the way of surrender. And he invited everyone into this reality of what it looks like to be fully human. Part of this proclamation from Jesus came and he's demonstrating what the kingdom of God is like. And later on, in Mark's narrative, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as Jesus is riding in on a donkey, his followers, who were men and women, were laying down palm branches. And this is what they were saying. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, coming our father, David. Now, why would they say this? Who is David? David, in the bigger story, is one of Israel's most beloved kings. Why are they comparing Jesus to David? Now, when you look at the text, what's important to do is I would suggest you have to go up about 10,000 feet, all right? So come up about 10,000 feet with me, and let's look at the bigger story going on in the biblical 
narrative. As we rise up and we begin to see Jesus' compelling vision and mission and the bigger story of God, we begin to see eight main characters who come to the surface. So who are the eight main characters in the whole biblical narrative? You ready? Number one, God. That's a given. Number two, Adam, Eve, Abraham, Sarah, a guy named Moses, a king named David, and any guesses on the last one? Jesus. It's always the safe answer, right? Jesus is the eighth main character. Now, God begins in Genesis chapter 1. God is the main character, and God establishes God's self as the main character in creation, and God begins to create. And when God creates, what does creation end up doing? God sets creation in motion and gives it fertile goodness, independence, creative freedom, and a life of discovery and adventure. Doesn't that sound beautiful? All of those beautiful things. It's a creation full of possibilities. And this creation isn't thought of something that God is independent of. He doesn't remove himself from creation, but he chooses to participate in creation. God interacts with creation. God lovingly cares for creation. God participates in creation because God is a relational God. So that's where the story begins. And God plays a role in creation. What is that role? Number one, God is our good and wise king. Now keep these things in perspective. This will help us with the bigger stories. The first thing is, is that God is our good and wise king. When we look at creation, we understand this is God's domain, this is God's good earth, God has created it, and God is relating to it. Enters in characters number two and number three. Two people, Adam and Eve. And in some way, these two main characters actually reflect God's goodness and God's created order back into the world through creativity and freedom and participating with creation. So in the beginning, we are given a picture of what it means to be human. Adam and Eve are like stand-ins for all of humanity. They represent something bigger going on. These two humans have been created in the image of our good and wise king. We've been given responsibility as human beings to be agents of our king, to create, to preserve, to steward, when you're doing yard work, you are participating as an agent of the king. You are making things beauty, beautiful and bringing things into order. So taking care of the earth, taking care of people, working hard on relationships is like an act of worship. Think about that the next time you are trimming the hedges. You are worshiping by creating order because you're bringing beauty to the earth as an agent of the king. But in the story, we know that things quickly go sour. The earth then comes under poor management. And these two stand-ins for humanity decide to disconnect from the wise and good king. And they begin to treat this God as a fellow shareholder. And they begin to negotiate with God. And there's two things that happen quickly in the story. In Genesis chapter 3, I would suggest there are two main things that happened when Adam and Eve decide to go on their own and step out in their own journey. The first thing that happened was, is we have this thing called broken 
relationships. Our relationship with God was broken in that moment and also with one another. Secondly, we now have broken communication, if you haven't noticed. Broken relationship, broken communication with each other and with God. And have you noticed that the story continues to happen today? It's not like it's a one-time event. We still have broken relationships and we still have broken communication. Now, scene number two, we have a major crisis. What's going to happen? Is this God going to abandon creation? Is this God just going to say, y'all are on your own. Go at it. Good luck trying to manage the world. Does God suggest that we should just destroy everything and start over? Will this king force us to behave and coerce us into following in his good and wise way? Third scene, this king actually does something about the crisis and says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a team. And this team is called a family. And through this family, God is going to do something about all of the brokenness and the chaos. And through generation after generation, they're going to remember their creator. They're going to remember their original purpose. And they will bring light into darkness. They will bless people wherever they go. They will be a healing presence on the earth. And our good and wise king believes that creation can be rescued from human evil. So in steps Abraham and Sarah, character number four and number five. And God says, I got a plan, and it's brilliant. I'm going to heal the earth through an elderly couple. Great plan. I'm going to heal the, I'm going to heal the world through an elderly couple. And there's a miraculous birth that comes from a barren woman. And through this miraculous birth, God's people are brought into the world. They are called the Jews, the nation of Israel is born. And the manifesto of this people is what? To know God and to make God known. That's the manifesto of this people. Then the story as it continues, Abraham and Sarah fall into hard times. They become slaves to an oppressive empire known as Egypt. And God's people, after hundreds of years of making bricks in the hot sun, they cry out. God sends them a deliverer because this is a God who fully participates in creation and brings in character number six, a man named Moses. And through Moses, God's plan is we're going to liberate creation. We're going to liberate my people from slavery and I'm coming to save them. So again, God is interacting with creation. He's a relational king. And through Moses, God delivers his people from slavery and salvation comes into the world. Now, in order for humanity to reconnect with God, to address the broken relationship, to, to address the broken communication, what does God do? Through Moses, God brings what is called the law. In other words, to talk about the law is the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. And the purpose of the Torah is to help form and shape these people. This is what it means to be my people on the earth. Use these words to instruct yourselves how to grow, how to treat one another, how to structure yourselves, how to live and flourish on the earth. And God's purpose for his people is I want you to spread shalom wherever you go. 
to spread shalom, bring shalom to the earth through your actions or your interactions with one another in relationships. Bring it into the world. Foster shalom wherever you go. This is how we heal the earth. And so the law is given so that the people can know God and, and so that those around them can know who this God is. So this God is always out ahead of us. This God is always interacting with creation, saving people, loving people, liberating people, rescuing people from all sorts of chaos and brokenness. And then finally, around 1000 BC, God brings in a new character into the story and King David comes into a position of leadership. This raises a question. Under King David, a good king, a wise king, a loving king, will the people of God reach their true intent and purpose on the earth? And the answer is no. Two generations later, King David's leadership isn't going well. There's lots of arrogance and there's lots of foolishness. Uh, patterns, right? We still see these things happening today, do we not? Arrogance in leadership and brokenness. Two generations later, that's all it took, the kingdom flounders. Civil war breaks out. North versus south. Separation. All this stuff happens. We see this happening today on the stage of humanity. All this stuff that divides us. And once again, God's people remain under dominance of a superpower, a foreign power. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the, Roman, the Romans. So generation after generation, the people lie in ruin. And this is the story that Jesus was born into. Jesus is the eighth and final character in the story. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, it gives us a clue and it tells us this. Jesus is born during the time of King Herod. Now, when you see that in scripture, don't jump past it too fast. The lights on the dashboard should be going off at this point. The author's trying to tell us something. Jesus is born during the time of the rule and reign of King Herod. So Jesus is born during a time when an already established kingdom is in place. And this kingdom is like the direct opposite of the kingdom of God. And what do we know about the kingdom of God? What do we know about this good news? Well, Jesus begins to tell us, this is my purpose, this is my mission. Several months ago, we looked at Luke chapter four, verses 18 through 19. Do you remember what it said about the mission of Jesus? Jesus himself says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's that word, good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How does Jesus see himself in the big story? That's a compelling question. Jesus sees himself as not somebody who's dropped in late in the game, but Jesus sees himself in the whole of the story coming to fulfillment in his time at this point in history. So as I step back and I'm looking at the story, I have to ask the question, why would Jesus refer to his movement as a kingdom? Why is he using this language? Well, he's calling up the memory of David. Jesus is claiming 
to be the new David. Remember, under David's leadership, the world of God's people were experiencing peace and prosperity. They were experiencing joy. It was a time of spiritual revival. The people were coming back and experiencing a revivement of their connection to God. But then Jesus takes it even further. He doesn't just stop there. He, he begins to talk about liberation. And whenever you see liberation language being spun out in the scriptures, what is that about? That's about Moses and the story of God's people being liberated from slavery and from oppression. So we think of Jesus as the new David, but he's also the new Moses. And what did Moses do? He brought in the law of God. So when we read passages of scripture like John 13, 34, Jesus starts to speak of a new commandment. You're like going, wait a minute, what language are you using here of a new commandment? And then in Matthew chapter 5, which we're going to situate ourselves in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say this. What is that? You have heard this, but I say this. Again, Jesus is revealing that he's the new Moses. He's giving us a new way of living, a new way of forming ourselves as people. So that is why we're going to situate ourselves in the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter and what does this Jesus do? He calls 12 disciples. That's like a go back to Abraham and Sarah who bring forth 12 tribes of God's people on the earth. And the purpose of these 12 tribes was to be a blessing to all the nations, to make God known and to know God. So Jesus calls 12 disciples and says, this is how we're going to form. This is how we are going to be human on the earth. And these are God's people. And what Jesus does is he takes it even further and he begins to call men and women and he calls them, these are my disciples. And then Jesus is referred to as the second Adam, right? So he's, he's declaring himself as like a primal kinship with all people. And then we see this Jesus hanging out with wealthy people. Imagine that, hanging out with wealthy people. And he's sitting with them, interacting with them telling them the cost of what it means to be a follower on the earth. But then we also see Jesus hanging out with prostitutes, with people who are pushed out of any positions of power. And he's calling people to himself. And he's saying, all of you are invited to participate in the kingdom of God. All of you are invited to look at how it means to be human on the earth. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about the crowds coming to them, which gives us a picture of these agents of good, God's good and wise king are coming together and he shows us this is what it means to be human. And he raises the dead and he heals the sick and he confronts injustice. He speaks to nature itself and it obeys his very command. Ultimately, what God is doing here is through Jesus, Jesus is revealing, I am God in human flesh and bone. I am God. And we see God saying things like this through Jesus. When you see how I am with people, that is what I am like. And we see Jesus saying, when you see who I invite to my house and who I'm inviting to my party, this is what God is like. Question for us, are we anything like Jesus? Are we a reflection of our good and wise King? Let's step back for a moment again. 
when Jesus makes this declaration that the kingdom of God is here, that the good news has come upon the earth, who is in control at this point? Rome. Under Roman rule and reign, there's prosperity, there's peace. Rome is expanding. Wealth is increasing. Military force continues to grow. They are the most powerful military force on the planet. They believe that they are the greatest nation on earth. And it appears like this is the end of the story because Rome has achieved what we all think we're after. And all of this is because of the divine son of God, Caesar. Now, are we anything like Jesus? Let's think about it for a moment. Here's Jesus. No military presence, no weapons, no wealth, no land, no home, and he gathers up a group of peasants, men and women. He travels from village to village, going to the urban poor, speaking to peasants, unemployed people, homeless people, and disabled people. He's relational with them. He stands in solidarity with them. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he refers to these people as blessed. These are the blessed ones. These are the ones who actually are going to fully participate in the kingdom of God here on earth. And he begins to show us, this is how my message, the good news, actually advances on the earth. Are you ready for this? No violence, no bloodshed, no hatred, no revenge. In fact, it advances with great faith. When we risk, when we give our money away and our resources, when we forgive, when we think someone is asking too much of us and we keep giving anyway because we can't help but be ridiculously generous. And when we love our enemies and even when we love the enemies of our nation. On the surface, it would seem like this isn't how you start a revolution, is it? This isn't how you change the world. But let me ask you this, is what we're currently doing working? Can hate conquer hate? Can war cure war? Does pride overcome pride? And does revenge overcome evil? Jesus, our good and wise King, lead us through these beatitudes. Help us to fully embody what it means to be human. Help us to live in your way and begin to breathe and live the Sermon on the Mount and not be discipled by CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Newsmax, whatever your choice may be. But may we be a people who choose the third way, where we don't align and we don't push and we're not looking for power, but we humbly submit ourselves to our king, the good and wise king, who calls us to lay down our rights and follow the way of love. Let's live into the way of Jesus together. That's the invitation. That's the journey. Put your seatbelts on. It's going to get a little bumpy.